Well, we just spoke about the fact that uh, the Lord's kingdom on earth is our hope for the future, and so this is a good time for us to resume our study about the future. Um, it's been a little while, but just to refresh your memory, we've been talking about peaks in God's prophetic mountain range, and the last one we spoke of is the second coming of the Lord Jesus. So what's going to happen after? When he comes, will it be business as usual, life as we know it? Oh, no. When he returns, everything will change. Uh, but when he returns, everything will change for the good. I think it's going to get worse before it gets better, but it will be worth it all because when he returns, he will establish his rule and reign on thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. That's what's going to happen when he comes because when he comes the second time, he will usher in that period of time known as the millennium, standing for 1,000 years. And it's that period of time that we will begin to speak about tonight. During this time, the Lord will make all things new. He will establish his earthly reign on, Christ, uh, on earth. No, no, folks, it will not be business as usual. Everything will be entirely better. Now, to read about it, we ought to consult the very word of God. This is another thing we ought not be distracted from. Please don't listen to the increasing number of voices who are criticizing and demeaning the very word of God. They don't know who they are insulting. The Bible is the word of God. So we can find out about that future period by consulting it. So let's take a look at Revelation, a few verses in chapter 20. So Revelation chapter 20, here's verse 1. Then I saw, you know, it's the Apostle John speaking. Then I saw an angel coming down from Heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. So, so we have spoken of the rapture and the judgment seat and the antichrist and the period of great tribulation and the second coming. And notice here what it says. Then, so that means this verse is now moving us forward from all of these things. Then, after all these things, after the second coming, then, can you see how we're being moved forward even farther into the future? After all of these events, which have already been addressed in the book of Revelation and in other passages of Scripture, then, I have to tell you that word, that time indicator is very, very important Oh, I hope you're slowly reading the Bible. Don't speed read it. You'll miss words like then. Then tells me go forward, don't go back. Then tells me those who say this stuff has already been fulfilled in A.D. 70, 
don't know what they're talking about. Then, after all these things, I saw, said John, this angel, quite a unique angel. See, he possessed certain things, two of which are a key, it says, and a great chain. You know what that is? Those are symbols of authority and power. The angel has authority and power. And so it says in verse 2, and he laid hold of the dragon, in case you're wondering who he is, make no mistake, look, the serpent of old. In case you're not sure still yet who he is, look, who is the devil and Satan. So four descriptive terms uh, for uh, Satan. And, and this angel bound him, Satan, the dragon, the serpent of old, the devil, for a thousand years. You see, the millennium, I didn't make it up. Millennium, 1,000. Here it is, 1,000 years. So this angel has delegated authority. God gave him the key and chains which, with which to bind Satan. Look, Satan himself for a 1,000 years. You know, I believe in the existence of Satan. You ought to also, because the same book, remember God's word that tells us so much about our Savior, also tells us quite a lot about Satan. And so I can't extract only the Savior and deny the existence of Satan. But you don't want to, you don't want to attribute to Satan equal power with the Savior. Because here I have an illustration of how even one of God's angels, when given God's authority, has power over Satan. You see it? There's just so much in the scriptures that give us hope and free us from fear. That I believe in the existence of Satan doesn't mean I'll worship him and attribute to him divine characteristics. Good night. Even one of God's creaturely beings, an angel, can force Satan underground when God authorizes him to do so. And so one of the great characteristics of the day to come if this day's a little troubling, don't worry. We're not going to be here forever. We're just passing through. I love the word then. When all this is over, then. Millennium. And one of the characteristics of the millennium, which comes right after the Lord returns the second time, is this. Satan is restrained. That's good. So can you see that's going to be a far better day? Frankly, he isn't very much restrained at all today. Frankly, he seems to be quite active today, maybe even more than in any other day, because he read the Bible and he knows there's a then to come. And so he's trying to wreak as much havoc as he can in the now, because the now will give way one day to the then. But one of the great characteristics of this period of time, notice, which is subsequent to the tribulation and the second coming is the millennium. So you want to get the order of these events correct. And it'll be a great day. Satan is restrained. Look, it says so, uh, Revelation 20, verse 3. And he, this is the angel again, and he threw him, Satan, into the abyss. Uh, the word means bottomless it's a bottomless, infinitely bottomless pit. It doesn't have a bottom. It's bottomless. And so the angel cast Satan 
into the abyss. And not only that, he shut it and sealed it over him so that he wouldn't deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So the purpose for the confinement of Satan during the millennium is, it says right there, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer, which implies that's what he's been doing. If there'll come a day when he will be so confined in the bottomless pit that he can no longer deceive the nations, that implies that's what he's doing. In fact, if Satan has a number one tactic, I think it's this one, deception. This explains to me the world's situation. He deceives the nations. This explains to me current events. I'm not going to look to the newspaper or television commentators. Their minds are darkened in their understanding. This explains to me the international situation. The deceiver is deceiving the nations. And that's why the nations are in the shape they're in. The deceived are deceived by the deceiver. But there'll come a day when the deceiver can no longer deceive the nations. Why? Because he is cast into the bottomless pit. And so it says, In the next verse, Revelation 20, verse 4, then I saw, you understand John is seeing this in a vision. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. Hey, if you're like me and you're reading slowly, you see the they, you see the them. The immediate question that comes to mind is, who is the they? Who is the them? Well, 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 there's an answer. Who, who are these who John saw in his vision seated on the thrones and to whom authority to judge was given? Well, a good hint in reading the Bible is to use the Bible to comment on itself. So doing that, let me share with you 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now I have an answer to my question. Who is the they seated on the thrones and with authority to judge? The ones John saw and which he said he saw in Revelation 20? Well, using the Bible as a commentary, it's the saints. Don't misunderstand. Those are not people who other people bestow sainthood on. Who has a right to do that? Give me a break. The word means sanctified, separated, set apart, holy ones. In other words, Christians set apart for the special purpose of glorifying God. So, can you handle this? It's us on these thrones who are judging with delegated authority. Wow, that is so cool. Because we're not going to be elected. We don't have to make speeches and do all this crazy stuff and make promises. There is no way we could keep. But in that millennial reign, God will have us on thrones judging. And so 
It says this even in Revelation chapter 5, verse 10. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. Democrats? Republicans? Independents? No. They, the saints, believers, followers of the king, shall reign upon the earth. I know the now is a bit distressing and distracting, so thank God for the then. I can get through the now, so could you, because I know the now is going to give way to the then. Just hang in there. All suffering seems for the moment to be painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have submitted to it. Hang in there, my fellow Christians. Nobody's calling the shots except our Abba Father. Relax. The now is going to give way to the then. This is not the time for Christians to walk around looking gloomy. This is the time to be joyously in the face of the rest of the world so that they can see living proof of a loving God. Well, the first characteristic you see of the millennium is that Satan is restrained and uh, the second characteristic is that saints will reign. You see, that's going to be a good day. Now the rest uh, of verse 4 of Revelation 20 tells us who in fact will be alive during this 1,000 year period known as the millennial reign of Christ. Here, look what it says. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. Whoa. Because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast. Remember, he's the Antichrist. Or his image and had not received the mark. Remember that? We talked about that. On their forehead or on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ. Look, for a thousand years. So now I know already some of those are going to be alive during the millennial reign of Christ. It's these who have suffered and been martyred for the cause of Christ during this tribulation period. Some people refer to them as tribulation saints or tribulation believers. Well, their bodies have been destroyed, martyred, they're dead, but they will be raised to new life and they will reign with Christ for this 1,000 year period. Notice it says they came to life. Folks, that's called resurrection from the dead. But there are others who do not share in that resurrection. They're mentioned in verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years. Do you know some people deny that this is a literal 1,000 years? How many times have I read 1,000 years already? Four or five? Come on. Let's not, let's not destroy the obvious meaning of the text. Do you know what 1,000 years means? One more than 999. One less than 1,000 in one. It's not symbolic. It's not conceptual. It's not mystical. It means a thousand years. Come on. When the plain meaning of the text makes sense, don't look for another meaning. A thousand years means a thousand years. So anyway, but, but not everyone is resurrected. Look, uh, to life. The rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. So Another question, who are the rest of the dead? Well, they're people who have died without Christ. You die 
in relationship to Christ or you die separated from Christ. I mean, those are your only two options, right? <clears throat> the tribulation saints died, but in connection to Christ. So they're raised to life. But these, the rest of the dead, are people who simply died physically, but are not resurrected to new life. Oh, they also will be resurrected. You know why? There's no such thing as the annihilation of life. Some people actually teach that. They call it annihilation, meaning when you're dead, you're dead, that's it. That's not true. Do you know that human existence is eternal? The question is not whether or not you're going to live forever. The issue that confronts you is what will your circumstances be forever? If you remain a rejecter of Christ here, he will allow you to be separated from him then and forevermore. If you're bound to Christ by your faith in what he has done for you, then you will be bound to him blissfully forevermore. That's the way it is. So these people also who have died apart from Christ will be resurrected, but the resurrection will not be the same. There are two resurrections to come, a first resurrection and a second resurrection. So the first resurrection involves believers and is a resurrection to life. The second resurrection involves non-believers and is a resurrection to judgment. Believers are resurrected first. It's called the first resurrection. That's what John told us about in verse 5. This is the first resurrection. Non-believers are resurrected second. It's called the second resurrection. And the two resurrections are separated by 1,000 years. At the beginning of the millennium, the tribulation saints are raised to new life. And they live during this earthly reign of Christ. At the end of the millennium, we'll talk about it. Great white throne judgment. Unsaved people are raised to stand before the judge of all the world. So Revelation 20 verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. See what I mean? They didn't come to life until after the millennial reign of Christ. This is the first resurrection. So all believers are part of the first resurrection. However, this has caused a lot of people, I think, to stumble. The first resurrection consists of phases. For instance, there is first, in the first phase, the resurrection of Christ. Didn't he rise first? Isn't he called the first fruits? Then there is the resurrection of the church. When does that take place? Right there, at the rapture. He's the first fruits we follow after. The rapture is the resurrection of the church. Then there is the resurrection of Old Testament believers. When does that happen? I don't know. I'm not sure. Some people say also at the beginning of the millennium. I don't know. I just don't have it figured out. And then there's the resurrection of tribulation believers. That one I know, because we just read about that one. You see, So you see these phases of the first resurrection, but it's all part of the first resurrection, and the first resurrection only involves believers, and it's really a good thing, because all believers, Old Testament, uh, church age, tribulation age, are raised 
to new life in Christ. So, all those who are part of the first resurrection will be forever blessed. But there's, I mean, it says this, Revelation 20, verse 6. Look, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Now, you may not understand this fully. Um, get, go to our website and listen, listen to this message again, because I confuse myself most of the time. So you sort through it again. It's a little complicated, but don't miss this. If you're a believer, you're part of the first resurrection. And, and, and that's a good thing. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death. Oh boy, I know you're getting... This is a little deep water, isn't it? You got the first resurrection and the second. You got the first death, second death. It's not that bad. You know what the first death is? It's when you die. Physical. You know what the second death is? For some, they experience spiritual death forever. Eternal separation from the giver of life. So this says, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Why? Because over these, the second death, eternal death, has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a mystical, abstract, symbolic, allegorical? No, for 1,000 literal years. So if you're a Christian, you have just avoided the second death. The worst that could happen is you die once. That's it. That's the worst that could I mean, you may not. The rapture may come before you die or I die. But even if you go first, it's not that big a deal. You're still part of the first resurrection, which is to eternal life. And so you avoid the second death. You know, dying once is, is not that big a deal. Dying forever is a real big deal. See, that's called hell. Eternal dying. So, but if you're a Christian, you're part of the first resurrection, you're not going to be subject to the second death death. Believers don't die the second death. In fact, it says here in this verse, in fact, they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Can you think about it? During those thousand years, the millennium, believers will rule and reign with Christ. And what's more, we will be priests of God, it says. In other words, we will in that period of time the establishment of the Lord's kingdom on earth. We will be his agents carrying out his wishes and his will during the time of his kingdom on earth. Folks, think about it. Believers in that day will be administrators and governors and mayors and educators and legislators and law enforcers and judges. In that day, those who have the mind of Christ, those whose hearts are inhabited by the heart of Christ, those who are Christ ones, in that day will exercise every position of authority and influence during the 1,000 year earthly reign of Christ. The millennium, can you see, is something to look for. What a day that will be. Once again, 
Satan will be restrained by Christ and the saved will reign with Christ. That's called the millennium. It isn't now, far from it, but it is then. And so this wonderful 1,000 year earthly millennial reign of Christ really is our hope. I think things are going to get worse. It has to be that way if the Bible is true. We're already told about it. And it has to get worse because God loves people and wants to bring us all to the end of ourselves. He wants to get us to the point where we're not making frivolous promises we know in our heart we can't keep. He wants to bring us to the point where we admit we have broken the marvelous earth he created beyond repair and we can't fix it. He wants to empty us of self-reliance and self-confidence and self-dependence. All of the virtues of our present day which are really vices and not virtues at all. He wants to get us to loose our hold on the throne of our own lives. He wants us to dethrone self and make sure everyone has an opportunity to let him be on the throne of our lives. He wants us into disorientation and maybe some cataclysm and maybe some a downturn in the economy. He wants us to cry out, Oh God, we need you. Have mercy. Help us, oh God. You see what a loving God is. So it has to be this way. And so we're, we're in this world and we're going to be affected by it as well. Uh, Hurricane Ike affected Christians as it did non-Christians as well. That's the way it is. But oh man, as I've been thinking about our, our father and, and then his reign during that millennium, oh. It's really, really good. Everything about the system today will be overturned. (laughs) Because then that day, it will not be a democracy. Did you know democracy is not the highest form of government? It's only the highest form of human government. But we humans can mess up democracy just like we can mess up any system. The highest form of government is theocracy. That is when Theos, Almighty God, reigns. And it's going to, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. You're praying for the millennium. Thy will be done on earth. As it, that's, the, that's in Matthew chapter 6. The Lord told his followers, pray this way. He's saying, Pray in light of the millennium. Well, dear folks, um, we have to be salt and light, and we have a grand opportunity in this day. We have to communicate to people that were in the Father's good hands, and they could be as well, and then you could have peace which passes understanding. So what an opportunity for us to live out the distinctively Christian Life. It isn't a Christian distinctive to be cynical and negative and troubled 
and all the rest. It's a distinctively Christian thing to experience the fruit of the Spirit, one aspect of which is joy. I didn't say happiness. Oh, no, joy is so much better. Joy means, oh, God, even in the midst of such difficult and challenging circumstances, you're up to something. Nahum said he is doing a work in our day. We couldn't comprehend it if he were to explain it to us. Our father's at work and he's bringing all things now to then. A grand and glorious outcome. So just hang in there. What do we do until the then? We turn our eyes upon Jesus. Could I ask you to stand to your feet? Let's make that our little send-off word of truth. We'll sing it uh, together, and then uh, we'll be on our way. Let me pray for us first, because I want the singing of that little chorus to be the last thing on our hearts. Go out with a song in your mouth. Our pastor's not with us right now, and I always love to uh, pray for him, if you don't mind. Uh, while he's away. Lord Jesus, thank you for bringing us to this place in this time. And we're in your wonderfully good hands. And one of the manifestations of it is the wonderfully good pastor you have blessed us with. We are so grateful to you for him. He reflects your stability and commitment. And boy, does he care for the sheep, us, allotted to his charge. So, oh God, would you continue to bless our pastor so that he can be an even greater blessing in the days ahead than ever before. So that means we want him to be healthy and well and energized and excited and filled with the spirit of wisdom, Lord Jesus, and just encouraged by us. So as he expends himself and pastoring us, I just do pray we would return to him a deposit of love and gratitude. So thank you for our pastor. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that we are the sheep of your fold. And uh, you will never leave us or forsake us. And we are in your good hands. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the past and for the present. And, oh, God, thank you for the then. The future is bright because you hold the future. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.